This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and today we're lucky to have Tony Wibbler. He's the CEO at Boulder Industries. Boulder Industries solves challenging environmental issues for the industrial waste industry by developing sustainable products and services through technology. Their charter product, Boulder Black, is a sustainable alternative to traditional carbon black produced using waste tires that would otherwise be placed in landfills or incinerated. Boulder Black is created in a net energy positive facility that emits 90% less CO2 emissions and uses 90% less H2O than traditional methods. Tony, thanks for taking the time to be on the show. Thanks, Bob. Super. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself and your business. So uh, I was born in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Grew up as a Midwestern guy. And uh, my father was an entrepreneur. So obviously, I was born in an environment where I was very heavily encouraged to become a doctor, lawyer, something other than entrepreneurship. Um, that lasted about 10 seconds. I graduated from, from Ball State University, ultimately, and um, got my first taste of uh of entrepreneurship with my first job out of college and I worked for a guy who had invented voicemail and he was an Indiana guy who came back home to invest in a series of companies and I was working directly for him in one of those companies. He had a very interesting partner and the two of them taught me a lot about entrepreneurship, about business and I met a lot of interesting people along the way because of the customers we served. Ultimately one of those customers turned out to be in the medical device industry and offered me a job in a startup company that I had these things called stock options. Wasn't exactly sure what that meant, but everybody seemed to think that was a, an important part of my compensation package, which I think was $0 stock options only. So there was some value there. Had a really cool opportunity to launch 17 different products into the uh, medical device space from literally four guys in a garage. We ultimately sold to a publicly traded company about seven years down the road. And I learned a lot about products, services, and feeding a market. But uh, more importantly, I learned about following some passions. It was in the women's healthcare space and waking up in the morning and knowing that when you wake up and every patient you see has a better outcome and a better day because of it, you want to work a little harder, put a few more hours on the road, just get that extra patient because every single patient you touched had a better situation. So if you could just squeeze one more in, and that was a big driver for me personally. I don't think I realized it at the time how it was all happening, but looking back into it, I knew that when I was going to do something again, that I had to have that kind of burning passion and there had to be something um, that woke me up in the morning and said, if I do my job, everybody's better for it. And uh, it's easier said than done. So I did spend a couple of years fiddling around with my passions for environmental uh, benefit and not the easiest world to navigate. It's not very easy to figure that out. Um, there's a lot of greenwashing out there. There are a lot of unintended consequences from, from recycling, traditional recycling methods. There's excessive water usage and excessive power usage, and there's all these unintended consequences. And to say that I was going to build something that had to be driven by passion because I'm not much of a guy who looks at the dollars and cents very easily. I'm not a, I'm not somebody who would probably be very good at, at, at being a, just a finance person, just working, you know, working the dollars. Um, I, I try to build something that's unique and, and I'm a very passionate person and that's what drives me. So I have to be in that business. So finding something that would do that, but then also that would help people and that would help our environment in a way that I try to eliminate as many unintended consequences. So the charter of ultimately what became Boulder Industries through a series of different events 
But where we are today is the, the, the goal, the mandate was take waste products, generate more power than we need, reduce water usage from traditional methods, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, reduce landfilling, create jobs in areas that are needed. Those were the goals of the business. And how we did that was pretty wide open. We weren't a technology company at the time. We didn't have any uh, any allegiance to any particular waste stream, but I knew I wanted to be in the waste business and manage waste. I knew that. And I knew there were lots of different gizmos and black boxes that said they could do lots of different things. And I wanted to marry up the, uh, the best common solution. So having a products background put me in this weird spot where for a few years people thought I was kind of lost and maybe I, even did, I thought so too because I really started focusing on products versus what the machine could do. I really could care less about somebody's technological whiz-bang deal. It wasn't really that important to me. It was important to me. Did it work? Did it make something that I could create a product out of or work with a company to co-develop a product out of it? Because what I always find in the recycling business is the outlet markets are valued very fickle. They're challenging. Sometimes they're important. Sometimes they're not. Um, heavily supported by government assistance. And what I was focused on is how do we make real products for real people with real companies out of waste? And I narrowed it down and ultimately landed uh, about two years ago solely on tires for today. But we are, uh, 85% of all of our efforts are dedicated to tires and what we can do with that material that's in there, which is a pretty wide range of products. And our first real product that came out of it is a product called Boulder Black. So our business is reclaiming tires and also industrial rubber and using our understanding and technology and manufacturing know-how and our trade secrets to understand how we create the ingredients to bake the cake for the end product customer. So for example, somebody who's making industrial hoses needs something that looks slightly different than somebody who's making phone cases. Mm-hmm. And we have worked backwards enough to understand which technologies. We have three of them in our facility. We have an electrically driven one, we have a gas driven one, and we have a batch system. And where's your facility at? It's in Maryville, Missouri. Okay. Which usually people ask me, why is it in Maryville, Missouri? Um, and the reason is, is that the first, the first lesson in entrepreneurship that I learned was no reason to spend excess money on anything ever. Lean operations win. And we have taken that tact. And there was a company who had, prior to us, gone out there and we were working with them and done a lot of really amazing things to get recycled carbon black into the marketplace. It's one of the first companies to ever get it in the marketplace. Unfortunately for them, there was uh, there's a series of things you also have to do beyond get the technology right. You also have to run a business. You have to have sales. You have to have revenue. You have to have the right kind of investors. And aside from what they had done so beautifully – which was actually commercialize recycled carbon black in the marketplace and make it actually go into products for the, for one of the very first times ever at commercial scale. Um, they couldn't make it on their own. It just didn't happen that way. And their bank, which was all debt, was was challenging. So we were able to purchase that for pennies on the dollar. And that gave us a really good head start. And that was in Maryville, Missouri. And um, Missouri has a unique tire problem. Um, very unique tire problem to, to not unlike many states in the country, but one for sure that has a unique tire problem that's, that's necessary to handle. Um, and they were uh, joint ventured with uh, the local university who has a really nice chemistry department to help out. So we have a lab in the chemistry department. It was just one of those things where sometimes a business you luck out. And I got lucky that I picked up $35 million worth of uh, 
uh, assets for a few million bucks and uh, was able to get an unfair start in this particular application, having taken their 10 years of work and all their money and starting from a different different point. Yeah, it's been my experience that good luck follows hard work. So <laughs> I don't think somebody just wandered up at your doorstep and said, oh, by the way, here you go. <laughs> yeah, it didn't quite work out that way. But I'll definitely say that there's some things that luck is definitely a part of it, right? And so, yeah, so you, you have to be in the right spot and recognize it when it happens. But definitely the uh, investor pool that we've been able to attract. Um, I've been in deals with great money and I've been in deals with bad money. And uh, I haven't seen a, any deal be worth anything with the with the wrong kind of money whether it be the wrong people, the wrong patients, the wrong timeline. And so we were very fortunate to have uh, been able to land a very large private equity firm um, and for us to be able to be an all-in equity partner. So we, we to, 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 as of today, our entire business is debt-free. So that's a nice place to be when you're in this position we're in. So that was another fortunate thing. And, we have, and they're cheer us on. Biggest cheerleaders we have is our investors, which is great. You know, I, I think about as we're talking here and, and folks are listening there go, so who is your target client? So that's a really good question and one that probably took us three years to figure that out. We thought we knew walking in. We thought we were going to create diesel fuel predominantly. We thought that we would take the carbon char that came out of the product and we would hopefully find that into a soil amendment, maybe an asphalt application, or at a minimum, they come pick it up for free. Now, that product, if we now knowing what we know and our experience we have, we don't have to char that. We can actually leave it intact, and it's a really beautiful product that can replace virgin carbon black. So on that side, and then now that we look at the oil, um, there's a lot of manipulation that has to be done to make it a diesel. And it's not its natural place. A lot of people still continue to consider, consider it its natural home. I think of it more as a chemical now, mm-hmm. which has opened up our opportunity for all types of industrial chemicals to come out of this, uh, out of these byproducts. So we're really focused on different stuff. So our ideal customer right now is anyone who's producing large volumes of black rubber or plastic products. So for, Yes, for the folks that are going like, well, off the top of their head, you know, tires come to mind. But who else would come to mind? Yeah, so tires represent about 80% of the virgin carbon black marketplace. Mm-hmm. So obviously that's the holy grail. But we're we're in testing with several of those tire manufacturers. I don't think we're going to see recycled the material because it is semi-reinforcing in the tire. I'm not sure that that's going to happen anytime in the next five years just because for practical reasons and for a lot of real reasons, those tire manufacturers actually care very much about the families who are driving on those tires. So they do not take any recipe change or any kind of change into their materials lightly whatsoever. It is a long and strenuous process, and they are very focused on a number one, which is the safety of the people riding on their tires. Mm -hmm. So we have a ways to go before we probably find our way into those tires. However, there's lots of other applications that work really wonderfully. Um, For example, rubber roofing. You know, and, and for for the folks that are that are listening, this is also going to be in a video format. And so, for the visually cued folks, we have some yeah examples. So that's funny because I'm actually heading off with my family to a Rockies game. So I'm, um, I'd like to say that normally I'm a little dressed, a little nicer, but I'm an entrepreneur in Boulder, Colorado. So the reality of is wandering in my office, finding me in a in, in a T-shirt and a ball cap is probably not <laughs> as in common as I like to say. So I won't even apologize for my attire because that's exactly how 
uh, I'm fortunate enough to be in Boulder, Colorado, and that's acceptable. This is, this is dressed up. It's acceptable, but I have a collar on today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've got a collar. And you got your Rockies hat on. I do. And they're doing well Rocks this year. Do, they're doing great. So yeah, we're excited. Are. I grew up, my, my father was a bat boy for the Cincinnati Reds when he was a kid, and we're playing the Reds today. So um, Oh. And I'm going with my, my sisters and my nieces and nephews. There's 12 of us uh, heading to the game. And um, I can guarantee that somebody's going to bring some Reds stuff out. Because uh, <laughs> growing up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, there was – yeah. The Reds were our team for uh, absolutely a family group. My father grew up in Cincinnati area, so yeah. So from visual, so this for example is a, an industrial hose. Yeah, hold that up just a little closer there. This is an industrial hose that mm -hmm. I actually just received as Bob came in. I opened up the FedEx. This is a uh, um, a production trial run on uh, for a company called Gates Rubber, which is the largest non-tire rubber manufacturer in the world. They're based out of Denver, Colorado, which is wonderful. And we're just finally getting them to take a look at some of this stuff. And they have a sustainability focus. They care. So if a company cares about the environment, cares about the people, cares about the future, which they do, um, they'll try to work this in. You know, it's in, and, and it, for the folks that, you know, that are interested in looking at this stuff, you frankly wouldn't know any difference than any other hose that you've looked at. I mean, it, it just... I mean, if you, you were expecting to see like a red hose or something different, you don't. It looks like everyday normal hose. It does, and that's been our <clears throat> big focus. And that's why – so for some, some people may know us as a company called Waste to Energy Partners, which was what the original name of the company was. And the plan was that we would take people's known technology, we would sell the outlet products, we would find the feedstock, we'd fund the project, and we'd go move on. So basically take a tire, get carbon black out of the tire or a hose – and then take the carbon black and present it to Gates to use as one of their components. Exactly. And so what we learned is, is that's not really that easy. That although carbon black is, sits solidly in a commodity marketplace, um, the customer is highly sophisticated. They're really sophisticated, and these formulas are their bread and butter. Mm -hmm. So cracking into the formula, helping them figure out how to get it done, building an entire building a product development team is not something I anticipated, but we're doing it now. And so the result is that we now can operate in products like this. So this is a rubber hose. This is a um, rubber roofing, also a, a Colorado-based company that we're testing some rubber roofing, which is going very, very well. And the, the sheer volume of rubber roofing, black rubber roofing worldwide is incredible. We could take every tire that's disposed of in the United States, which is about 300 million tires a year annually, for, for to, to understand some scale. And people think when I say 300 million, I was in a conference speaking and somebody raised their hand and said, I heard the numbers really like 350 million. And so if I say 300 million, I'm not rounding up. I'm probably just using 2014 EPA data. And I've been, I've been called out a couple of occasions that it's probably approaching more like 350 million. We couldn't even service the entire rubber roofing industry's carbon black need with all the tires. You know, and you think about as the, the rest of the industrial world start to do better, you know, and, and I don't know, China, India, you know, they're going to have similar same volumes to say the least. It's incredible, yeah, right? It, it's basically you, can, you basically, you can assume it's one tire per person per year. That's the assumption with the except in a developed country. Um, the UK has a has more like three tires per person per year, predominantly because um, Scandinavia and Northern Europe have different used tire capabilities. There's there's a limit to where their tread life is, where they have to discard mm -hmm. and replace. The UK is slightly less than that, 
So a lot of the, so there's a huge used tire market. So there's an <laughs> overabundance of tires in like the United Kingdom, for example, and Turkey's another country like that. You know, before we go too far, for the folks that want to figure out how to reach out to you or contact you, what's the social media ways for them to reach out to you? Yeah, you can reach us at uh, Boulder Industries and Facebook, and that's Boulder, B-O-L-D-E-R, Industries, not Boulder like the town. It is a kind of a play on words, but uh, we're a bold industrial development company. So um, you can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook. And then you can always uh, reach out to us at contact at boulderindustries.com. Super. And this is a fun piece that you have here. This is something we, I don't think we ever envisioned going to happen. And one of the things that was interesting is that because of our process, we're able to cook off all the volatiles in a way that's a little bit different than a virgin. So actually our PAH level is, is it can be lower, um, which is the PAHs are the volatiles that people are concerned about um, when they talk about FDA clearance. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to touch the skin, you want it to be as pure as possible. And because of the way we can operate our process, it's possible that people may be saying now that the recycled product actually performs better in certain applications like this neoprene wetsuit uh, material that I'm showing you here. Yeah, that, it's, what that, is that, 16th mil? You know, this is the inner liner oh, of the wetsuit. It. I mean, it's soft as calfskin. It's nice. So it's been dispersing really well. We don't have really any acne in it. We can look at it. It looks beautiful. So this has been a careful collaboration with uh, one of the environmental leaders of the world, a company that is known for starting with the environmental effects of all materials that go in. And we were really fortunate that that we got their ear and that they have been working with us in co-developing products that that meet their incredibly rigorous performance standards, but at the same time meet their incredibly rigorous environmental standards. And that fits us well. And so we work very well with them and um, their California-based business. And we're really, you know, you know, blessed and, 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 and once again, a little bit lucky that they thought this was interesting. So we're, uh, so basically, if you look around your room right now, by anything you look around, if it's black, you know, I've got a backpack over there that uses carbon black to make that black. We're looking at the video machine there. Anything that's black, rubber, or plastic, uh, we've, we can be anywhere from a 100% drop in replacement. And then our worst case scenario is somewhere around 10%, where it would be considered de minimis, where you wouldn't even recognize it being in there. Mm-hmm. But most people are loading somewhere between 30 and uh, and 50% at this time of replacing and that's a good start and then you've got this story on this seat where's the seat yeah the seat this is this is a cool story on this seat yeah so the seat's kind of interesting and this is uh you know we're trying to fit our customers needs and um you never know where they're going to come from so like for example this seat was important for a contractor to achieve an additional lead credit point they're looking for additional lead points in their contract to build a num- number of schools in the state of California. And one of the places to go is to furnishings that are that are put in here. And our Boulder Black worked with this particular seat. So there's going to be hundreds of thousands of these seats uh, manufactured using this product to go into school systems for, and it'll serve a couple of purposes. One, the environmental impact of using our product versus others is pretty massive. So that's really a good story for the world. Um, we're getting rid of some tires. That's a great story for the world. And then now this uh, this this school system and this contractor now have a, access to a lead point that they did not have before, and that's valuable to them from an optics and doing their job well perspective. And and it actually really works. So it was really it was a, it was a it was a great example of us solving a problem that we didn't even know really was a problem. 
But and there's a market for your product, which is. There's a, it's a great market and it's a simple product. And we, that was another product development that no one ever thought we'd ever make liquid black. Uh, as a matter of fact, I would say two years ago, I didn't even know liquid black existed. I just do carbon black. I didn't realize they had liquid black. We were just figuring this all out. You know, we're not from the carbon black industry. We're, you know, predominantly made up of, uh, gosh, we've got a, we've got a guy here. Uh, our chief sustainability officer was the chief strategy officer for quest communications. Mm -hmm. He was, uh, he was a general counsel and chief sustainability officer for a big uh, industrial manufacturer called JBD Corporation. We've got a um, gal here who uh, worked with Pepsi on branding and marketing for years and years. So we don't have this uh, huge carbon black industrial. We do have is meeting clients' needs and product development and project development and business development activities. So we wind up, we find up, we wind up in places we never thought we'd be in, but we're a little naive, so we don't know that we shouldn't be there. And you know, that's probably is that's a benefit because you don't have a preconceived notion that you can't. It is we, our business development guy is a call our sales guy. I think I'm not sure if we, you know, I'm not sure how our sales is uh, really interesting because it's about product co-development of products, right? Mm -hmm. And um, he was a sustainable director of sustainability for a very large publicly traded company. And he met me and saw what we were doing and said that of all the pitches he's had in his whole life of people coming in and trying to bring sustainable solutions, he just had never seen such an impact. And he's not really a sales guy at all. He doesn't know anything about virgin carbon black. Well, he does now today quite a bit. But at the end of the day, some of that naivete was we wound up in a lot of places. Like, I don't think that we would have focused at all on um, phone cases, for example. Like, mm -hmm. But we didn't know any different than just to call up to a local phone case manufacturer and say, hey, man, look what we've got. <laughs> <laughs> and and they didn't even they didn't even know what carbon black was because in their in their supply chain it's so far down. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of education. So when we talk to the director of sustainability for big large companies, right? So we're talking to some of the sustainability companies. So some of the major brands like Adidas, for example, who's just launched their plastic shoes, right? They are they are on the cutting edge of sustainability. And they care. Patagonia cutting edge of sustainability. So no one in our industrial world is actually talking to those products. So we're, we're meeting with people like Otterbox, Thule, um, Nike, Adidas, Patagonia, Mountain Standard. A lot of these companies, Gates Rubber, Johns Manville, who actually have a sustainability focus. They care about this stuff, but they don't eat, this isn't in their, this isn't in their mirror. This isn't in their review mirror. It's not on their sheet because where carbon black is in, imported into their product is really far down their supply chain. Mm -hmm. And if you just take the chief sustainability director of officer of Walmart and recently came out and said, 90% of our effort in the next few years is going to be in our scope three supply chain emissions. We're going to be focused on our supply chain. We've done the LED lights. We've done low flow toilets. We've made, we've made recycling a part of our DNA. We've done all of these things to help make ourselves more sustainable. But the real impact for us as Walmart is to help with our suppliers be more sustainable. That's where the real benefit's going to be. So we're seeing more and more companies focus on um, end-of-life producer responsibility mm -hmm. on the tire side. Like, they care. Michelin absolutely cares where the tires go. 100%. They just had a conference about it at their facility where hundreds of different companies came in to talk about helping them figure that out. Well, because I think about, you know, when you talk about how many tires there are per person, that's an annual base. But if they're not being disposed of, then it's an accumulative effect. And you start looking at the mountains of tires, and we've all seen them when we're driving around. It's there, and, and, and they're, you know, they're a liability. Well, and I think about, you know, if you talk about uh, some of the, the challenges by um, 
critters that breed in water in tires. You know, Florida's got that challenge now. But Zika virus was uh, a catalyst for people paying attention to what we were doing, mm-hmm. as an example, right? So we're, yeah, so what's really interesting is what we're doing. It seems so logical. It's so hard to actually do it, but it seems so logical. We've got all these tires with really no real natural home mm-hmm. for the volume. There's definitely, look, people are doing really cool stuff with tires. And I, everybody should keep doing it. I'm, I'm not the holy grail. I'm not the magic bullet. I don't solve all the problems. But I do fit into a big piece of the market. It's totally reasonable to say that, you know, our company over time, funded the way we are now, can grow and build more and more facilities like the one in Missouri over and over again. We have three more currently that are permitted, ready to go. All we need is customers. We have funding sources ready to go to deploy those funds for those factories. So we're And you have international demand because when we came in, you were taking a call from, I think it was England. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got, I've got a facility permitted in, in England. And um, yeah, it's, we're working with a group right now in Thailand to serve some Asian markets. So yeah, that's a, uh, so as, a, as it relates to all the tires in the, in the world, you know, it's, it's totally possible to build a hundred facilities like we have now and still be um, representing less than 10% of the total virgin carbon black market requirement. So to talk about the market sizes, which I think is always a really interesting thing to think about is that if I could attract 25% of the U.S. market, if I could attract 25% of the U.S. market, okay, of the tires, which by the way, there's one company right now that controls 57% of the U.S. market. So this isn't unheard of. Mm-hmm. This is one joint venture away from, and, <laughs> and we just have to figure out how, how, how we're going to work this deal out, but, sure. but we're on a first name basis, right? <laughs> we're chatting, we're, we're, we're meeting, on a, and, and then there's a group of independent owners that um, connected to each other mm-hmm. would like to you know, be a part of this as well. So if we took 25% market, we still would only supply the virgin carbon black market of the United States alone. Only 3% of that market can be supplied by us. So I could just, you, you know, for the folks that, that don't know, where does carbon black come from? So there's um, there's an oil called carbon black oil, which is designated CBO because it had no other use. And essentially um, under flame, they char and they burn that oil. And it's essentially it's the ash and the soot that is left over that is carbon black. Um so it's the heavy oil out of an oil well that's not suitable for fuel or, or motor oil. It's exactly what it is. And um, I don't need to tell you how environmentally challenging that is. And, you know, and hats off to, to, the, to the virgin black manufacturers and what they've done over the years to clean up what they do. It's just the process is the process. Mm-hmm. And they spend hundreds of millions of dollars cleaning it up and mm-hmm. working hard at it. There's one company recently that just put a co-gen facility on there. They, they work hard at doing it. But the nature of the business is not exactly the cleanest method, right? And it's hard. They're not going to get, you know, it's a hard business. And, and there's, it's very capital intensive. And there's probably not a lot of growth opportunities in the United States to, to produce more, um, to, to get that through a permitting challenge. I'm not even sure that there's anybody even thinking about that right now. Um, so right now in the United States, supply is shrinking because of more and more environmental regulations, which makes sense mm-hmm. at some level, but our demand is increasing. So right now, the statistics suggest that from the year 2016 to the year 2020, the demand for carbon black in North America will increase by 22%. 
you know, in, in thinking about the demand, and supply will decrease by twenty percent. So there's a gap in the marketplace. Yeah, you know, circling back to a comment that you made earlier, you were talking about liquid carbon black. Take me to the thought process or the aha moment where he says, you know, we're going to go from traditional carbon black to liquid carbon black. And and what did that look like in your mind? Yeah, well, we did. So it was actually a customer. As with all great, we don't know. We just make stuff that people ask us to make. They're like, hey, hey, this is a cool sustainability story, right? My job is to is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, water consumption, and energy usage in my business, right? That's my job. That's somebody's job in almost every company these days, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody has that role, right? So you talk to them, and they and then they say, you know, they're like, well, let's go find out. And, and we don't talk to them unless we already know that there's some sort of black rubber or plastic thing, right? Or they reach out to us, right? So we go through this whole process, and... These guys came back to us and said, hey, can you do liquid black? And the, <laughs> our answer was like, I think our answer was literally like, can you show us what that looks like? Can you send, <laughs> we didn't even know. We didn't even know. We were, we were so far away from like thinking about that. It wasn't something we invented. They just said, we use we use a liquid black. Can you make this? And we're like, we'll send us some. We'll see if we can. <laughs> so we did. We found one of, our, one of our other customers who understood this process and said, yeah, yeah we don't use much of it. We buy it from here. Let's help you do it. And we made some and sent it to the customer. And they were like, ah, it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Can you make it this way? And we went through a product development process and we made some liquid black. And um, I can't name the company because it's actually a really big name brand company. Um, something that for sure is in almost every home in the country. But um, it's in the flooring world. And um, it could be a really big business. So we, so most everything that we're, that we're doing, we, like, believe me, when we went to Patagonia to talk about different things, we did not think wetsuits was where we we're going to land, right? We were like, we were thinking about buckles, right? <laughs> Clips, buckles. Yeah, we just do the love sustainability, or like like the the uh, the clip from a cooler. Correct. Yeah. So what happens to us is the best thing that happen to us is to get people who want to collaborate on how do I reduce my greenhouse gas emissions? How do I reduce my 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 water? How how it, how, how do I reduce the energy consumption in my supply chain? Like, mm-hmm. how do I make that? that happened for me, right? And there are organizations that do they, they report out to, right? So depending on where what organization they supply to, whether the report comes out through a certain organization or whether they're in the DAO and it goes has to go through that organization, um, we have taken all of our data and we roll it up and provide the reports. Just like a just like a a, a, a like a recycler would do for construction debris on a project. They would sign the deal and say, "Hey, look, with your trash collection, we will recycle it and provide you with the reporting in lead format so that your portion of that book is completed by us, right? So we do the same thing. So sometimes we're just, sometimes the beginning of the sale is selling into compliance. Saying, our CEO has told our shareholders mm-hmm. that we're going to, this is our sustainability goal. My job's to to have a story that's reasonable. And so in some cases, our whole, our whole beginning has nothing to do with the product at all. It has to do with, this could be compliance for me. Now, how much of this can we use? Mm-hmm. And then you work into product development and you get into the R&D section and you get into the, the purchasing department and talking about at what price does this make sense? Is this marketable? In some cases, people don't find it to be marketable. In some cases, they find it to be, you know, if you're looking at two different products sitting side by side and they're both, they both look great and they're, uh, and they're both priced the same, are people going to, like, for example, in the uh, outdoor industry, we talked about deer hunting a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. right, and re- prior to this interview, you know, if you walk into a Cabela's 
I know my family is outdoors people, right? Hunters, fishermen, right? I'm more of a cyclist and a skier, but um, grew up in that. And I know if my father has the opportunity to buy a phone case and one of them says it was made from recycled tires and one of them wasn't, and he being a fan of Ducks Unlimited, Quail Unlimited, supporting the ecosystem in every which way he can, mm-hmm. that if this makes sense to him, he's going to buy that product over that. And in some companies that makes sense. In some companies it just doesn't. Um, so we have to really focus on where the value creation is. So, so if there, somebody's listening to this this podcast and they're going, mm, how how do they fit into the bucket for a client for you? How, how does yeah. that thought process and what do they do to reach out to you and go, we have this need or we have this supply? How do they start that dialogue? So the interesting thing is the two big needs that we seem to be able to fill the best, right? So we have to fill a need, right? So there's basically – actually, I'll say there's three areas. One, if consistent pricing is important to stave off the volatility of your products, like right now rubber is very expensive, SBR specifically. So it's volatile. So there's a lot of volatility in the carbon black industry alone, but in the black rubbers industry, it's also volatile for a whole host of reasons, but oil pricing and connected to the energy industry and those indexes makes it very volatile. So the first thing that we have, since we have the tires coming into us, either at some very small fee because we have a specific tire we want up to free and then we get paid. We can really, and because we make our own power, mm-hmm. we are decoupled from the energy industry almost completely because our mass, our raw material is a waste product and we're making our own power on site or feeding most of our facility on ourselves, right? So one of the things the, the offering is that we can have stable pricing. Okay. And in today's market, it's slightly cheaper. In today's market, it's 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 a slightly cheaper just on its own. Like the pricing is, uh, when oil was twenty six dollars a barrel, we were slightly more expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, now we're slightly cheaper, and we don't need to be any more expensive. We can we can offer long term contracts. So the thing is, you're looking for stability in your pricing, and carbon black's a part of your buy, uh, or a part of your products down the line. It's a way to stabilize some of your volatility of your raw materials. Um, the other need is if you have a big sustainability compliance need, the, the bang for the buck of investing into a product that probably costs the same or maybe even a little less, maybe slightly more, depending on where, where how big you are and where where, where the it's really transportation can change. Freight. Yeah. Freight, freight, can, freight can change that, right? Yeah. So, but we're really, you know, pretty close. And, and you, and, and a bang for your buck, I mean, to put some perspective, you know, we use 90% less water. And on a volume perspective, you know, we can demonstrate to that what that means in gallons of water. But our silly little plant right now, our first one, our first commercial scale plant, it's going to offset 1.8 billion 12-ounce um, water bottles. So it's like 160 million gallons of water um, if you were to, to buy a whole plant out of black, which wouldn't take many customers much, like there's, like it's a it's a fraction. It sure. doesn't it doesn't even it wouldn't even be a blip on some of the larger rubber companies. They, yeah, it's 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 stuff that hits it's it's the amount that hits the ground and that kind of value from the water savings to the greenhouse gas emission savings is pretty incredible. And then the other thing that's been interesting is it was new new to us, and that's part of the reason you're seeing some of these hoses, some of these things coming in is that. Um, you know, we built, we're building our baking our cakes, we're building our recipes, and we've learned that several industrial manufacturers who are manufacturing these rubber parts, we can actually bring them back in. So the term closed loop solution becomes important to people, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's a term. Zero waste has been adopted. 
So if you are a rubber manufacturer or you're buying products from somebody that's a rubber manufacturer and it's in your supply chain and you have a mandate, it's possible. And rubber is very difficult to get a hold of, get rid of industrial rubber. Um, the vast majority of it we find is going to landfill. I know people have some unique uses for it, but generally speaking, uh, the volumes are big, mm-hmm. and a lot of it ends up in the landfill, no matter how hard they try. It's just, it's 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 a fact of the reality. And in certain cases, we've been able to bring that rubber back to our facility. So we bring it back. Like let's say, for example, we bring three million pounds of agricultural tire waste from the process. And then we build it in our process and they take 3 million pounds of Boulder Black on the back end and we are now closing the loop on their industrial solution. Um, another example of that would be like our Holy Grail, one of our, you know, maybe Walmart's listening right now, but one of the things we really want to do with them is they have a lot of tire disposal because they have a huge tire business as a part mm-hmm. of their auto centers. And so one of the things is, is to take their tires, bring them in, process them, and then supply their suppliers with the people who make the rubber mats for them, for their cars. And you look on their shelves, you can go on their shelves and see Walmart sells a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. And they have a tremendous amount of carbon black that's embedded into the products they put on their shelves. And that would be a beautiful closed loop solution that they actually can help out. And not and, and not hurt performance. You know, as, as we're sitting here talking, we never know who's going to be listening. And so right. if you had an open message to the CEOs of, of large carbon black users, what would your message be to them? So I think the message is, is, is pretty simple. There, sometimes things are too good to be true, and sometimes things are just a lot of grit and hard work have culminated into something you didn't really expect. But if I were in my supply chain somewhere down the line buying carbon black, it makes sense to, one, make sure I can secure supply, two, stabilize my pricing, Three, have an environmental story with almost no heavy lifting on their end. We do all the product development on the back end. Obviously, there's a little bit of lift, but it's, it's really kind of can be a drop in replacement in certain cases and at, at small amounts. And it can add up to a really big sustainability story. So if you care at all about the environment and you're making anything that's black, plastic, or rubber, there is a way for you to actually have an environmental impact. And by the way, even if we take all the tires in the United States and do this process, we are not denting. The virgin black. We're not in competition with the virgin black folks. As a matter of fact, the virgin black producers are very hopeful that we'll all be successful and make a good quality product because we're not going to hurt. I mean, we're not competing with them. Like 100% of the tires use doesn't even get to 10% of the total market share. I just told you it's growing by 20%. So there's this, what we're going to do is we're competing with the imports. About a third of the virgin carbon black consumed in the United States today is imported from China or Russia. And that comes here. It comes, and you have to see your face, right? It's yeah. pretty clear. American jobs and local jobs. We could go to England and talk about England jobs, right? It's a localized thing because the transportation is very challenging, right? So um, we have different environmental requirements than they do in other places in the world. So sometimes they can make the black a little cheaper because they get away with a little bit more. So therefore, the transportation makes itself up. But that's kind of ending. And the air quality issues are not just related to what happens in China stays in China. That is not the case. It's tr- exactly true. So, you know, if made in America is an important part of your mantra, if that's important, I'm looking at this hose. It says made in the USA, right? Pretty pretty prominently. So I think this is kind of an important part of what we do. So we're creating American jobs. Um, you know, and we were talking about this a little bit before. You know, it's the elephant in the room. And you go, you've had this great process. Why don't more people know about it? Yeah, so we've been quiet on purpose. There's been a lot of, so if anybody knows anything about this industry at all, they would definitely say, well, I've heard of like 
several failures, right? You know, we, we are in the, call it the third wave of attempts, which is probably about the right time to be successful. Um, the first folks broke through a certain amount of ground. The second wave broke through another set of ground. And now, uh, and I'm not the only one, there are other companies right now doing the same work we're doing, in some cases better, in some cases worse, but we're all out there building an industry together. So um, the reason people don't know about us yet is that we've purposely been quiet because we don't want to promote something that isn't real. And I'm glad we did that because three years ago, I thought it was real. And then I actually had my own plant and had to work out the bugs, right? And it's taken a while. So we're definitely moving into that stage of the game where we're increasing our sales team, our business development team, we're increasing our market outreach. And we really have, we also didn't know how to sell into the marketplace. We didn't know what were we selling? And was it valuable to anybody? Just because we can do it doesn't make sure it's make it valuable. So it, it seems so obvious now when I say, well, if you have a compliance issue or you have a sustainability goal, we may be the easiest solution for that on. You know, I think about the, your comments earlier about talking to the customers says, can you just provide what we need? Well, there's a novel concept. Ask the customer what they want and see if you can provide it for them. It's it's it, there, there's so, so much of this business is has been in my my personal opinion it's been so focused on the technology, it's been so focused on look what I can do now let me force my thing onto you I can do with tires, we just took a different approach we just said well, if you need black carbon black, or some variation of carbon black, in your products and you need some sort of oil or chemical that looks like the hydrocarbon set that we have, somewhere in the general vicinity, what's that look like exactly? Because I can assure you, I'm working with three industrial host companies right now. You would think that it's almost exactly the same thing, but there's technology in there and there's proprietary recipe. And these guys, like, they, they take this very seriously. And people buy an industrial host. I mean, they make these very specific, just, this is not the commodity I thought it was. I mean, this is really sophisticated. So if they tell us this is how we needed to act, why we need to behave, we can work with them. Well, you know, if you have any industrial application of any kind and it's hydraulically driven and you're in the midst of a project and you blow the hose, well, then your day is pretty well done unless you have a hose replacement ability right there. So interesting. You bring that up. Like here's something. So we, one of the things people ask is you usually think in recycled products, it, should, it has to be cheaper. People think that, right? It needs to be cheaper. Except from the wayside, they tend to want to be willing to pay more to dispose of it. Um, we need to get the market to understand like it's, there's a process to actually creating products out of it. But right now they want it to be a little cheaper or the same price, mm-hmm. right? They also expect for the performance to be lower. That's just a known expectation, right? So we've tried to work on the performance of our product. And that wasn't about like changing our product itself. It was like about where does it perform? Under what conditions? And, and can it be a performant? And in, in fact... We've been working a test right now, an industrial belting. And the test was always for 1 million revolutions to hit that. And then that was the test that you, that the, the recipe was right for this particular manufacturer, right? We're over 3.5 million revolutions right now on our first testing belts, and, and, and they can't believe it because these belts are lasting way longer than they anticipated, right? You know, and I think about that, you know, recycling is an unfortunate term. If it had been enhanced or improved, you know, instead of recycled. Right. You know, I think those things would be of interest. And, you know, and, and I think we could probably talk for quite some time. However, yeah, you have a, a household full of Reds fans. I do. And and if we don't wrap this up, the they're going to. two years old and he's 
fired up for his first Major League Baseball game. <laughs> well, they're going to come hunt me down, and they, you along with it. <laughs> they're sitting downstairs ready to go. They're all piled up in the suburban. So, you know, in, in thinking about all the things that we wanted to cover here and, and to wrap it up, if you had a parting piece of guidance for the folks that are either listening and saying, you know, I should talk to them, or they go, you know what, I've got this idea about a company, what general advice would you offer to these folks? Wow. So, um, so I think it's two different questions, right? So I think the first question is general advice on, I've got an idea, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, somebody told me one day, become a writer, start writing it down. I have a million thoughts, right? And ideas, and they're lost in the shower. They're lost <laughs> everywhere. They're lost, you know, on your bike ride. They're, they're mm-hmm. lost, right? And so if you have an idea... So this was an idea, and it didn't become real until it was just really starting to be distilled on paper, right? Um, and I don't think there's any replacing that in the world today, regardless of what your technology is available to you. I think becoming a writer, getting good at writing and, and getting your voice, that doesn't mean you have to be a novelist or, uh, you know, you, you don't have to be particularly good at it. Nobody, I've never really had anybody uh, judge me on my grammar or my, or my spelling <laughs> when I was creating a business plan, right? but they certainly want to understand the structure and how it works. I'd say any general advice, like having been somebody who's built a few companies and been a part of some things and been just so fortunate to have teams around me to have, it's just the writing. And whether that's writing, communicating to your team what's going on, communicating to your clients, communicating to yourself what you want to do and putting yourself out there. So I think that's that's the advice on that side. And then if you think like that this is an interesting topic, reach out to us at contact at boulderindustries.com, B-O-L-D-E-R industries.com. And we have a group of people who their whole job is to listen to your need, identify if we can help. That need could be a waste need. That need could be a compliance need. That need could be you just have a, a, a an interest in sustainability. Um, and we'll be more than happy to work with you. And we certainly are in products we never dreamt of. Uh, we've got a yoga mat company just called us a couple of days ago. <laughs> and uh-huh. makes sense, right? Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Right? But we they called us. They met somebody at happy hour from Patagonia. And they were chatting about Oh, that's this. great, though. Yeah. And they were like, hey, call these guys up. Last tough question. Yeah. At the game today, Yeah. are you going to be rooting for the Rockies or for the Reds? So I'm a Rockies fan. Okay, you got the Rockies hat on. I got the Rockies hat on. I am a Rockies fan. I, uh, I, I, I never lived in Cincinnati, and uh, and so even though I was you know, from kind of the, the region, right? I uh, Major League Baseball wasn't a big part of my growing up, and so coming to Colorado with two young boys and uh, playing North Boulder Little League baseball and Digger and the Rockies it is a Rockies family through and through. <laughs> Well, and this year's a little easier. <laughs> yeah, some years are not that much fun. Well, I really appreciate you taking time and taking time away from your family. That's yeah. awesome. Thanks for coming. Really you bet. Appreciate it.